Okay, so Psalm 86 is on page 589 of the Blue Bibles. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God, have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear for your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me, but they have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me, because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies may see it and be put to shame, For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Okay, well, um, I'll ask you please to open up a Bible. If you don't have one, it'd be really helpful to grab one at this point and have it open in front of you. Uh, We're going to spend some time in what is a longer psalm than the previous few weeks. Uh, And also uh, the booklet uh, in the inside cover, there's an outline of what I'm going to cover. You will find it very helpful to have that open as well. It's been lovely being with you these last few weeks. Uh, and seeing something of the way in which God is obviously using this part of uh, this community and this part of his world to reach out with the good news of, about Jesus. Uh, I'll certainly take your greetings back to Trinity City uh, next week. Uh, we're coming to the end of the series uh, thinking about what uh, we learn from the Psalms about what God is like. So a God who blesses Psalm 84, a God who forgives Psalm 85, and this week, the God who answers. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. So as we turn to it this morning, uh, please remind us once again of how good and kind you are, uh, how you answer us uh, when we call on you. And uh, we pray that that conviction might shape all that we do each day of our life. Amen. Okay, well, Psalms 84 and 85, you'll recall they were uh, songs, uh, they were Psalms of the sons of Korah. Uh, some kind of musical group in ancient Israel. Uh, but today, Psalm 86, if you look at the top there, it's a prayer of David. Uh, it's a prayer of David, uh, the second and greatest king of Israel. Uh, it's a deeply personal prayer. Uh, nearly every single verse uses the word I or me. Do you notice that as it was read to us? Nearly every verse uses I or me in some way. Uh, this is a personal plea from David to God. But, at the top of your outline there, what's the key to the Psalms? Now, I'm going to not actually continue until someone gets this right, because I talked about it each week. The key to the Psalms, reading the Psalms, anyone? 
Tell us what God is like, not. Yeah, not, not, we feel not what our response is first and foremost. Okay, that's, that's what we've been seeing each week. The key to the Psalms, what it says God is like, not what we ought to do. Uh, and that's because, of course, we're not first century Jews living a thousand, uh, we're not Jews living a thousand years before Christ, like David. So it's kind of hard to appropriate what he says. And because the Psalms in the end, uh, what they do is they point us towards something of what God is like because ultimately we see in Jesus the fullest revelation of God. Uh, and so this week I'm going to do what I've done each of the previous few weeks. Hopefully you've kind of worked that out by now. Say a little bit about what the psalm says about God, then talk about how it points us to Jesus, and finally some reflections on what the psalm says about us today. Okay, so point one, what Psalm 86 says about God. Uh, and the psalm itself is divided into three parts, uh, verses 1 through 7, verses 8 through 10, and verses 11 through 17. I'm going to say something about each. So firstly, uh, verses 1 through 7, David's prayer, a servant calls on his master. A servant calls on his master. Let me read verses 1 through 7 again. You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Saviour. Put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all the generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Uh, Oh, I'm reading the wrong psalm. Let's try Psalm 86, (laughs) verses 1 through 7. Sorry about that. Here we go. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call on you. So hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Okay, Psalm 86, uh, verses 1 through 7. David's life is clearly in danger. Uh, look at some of the things that he talks about there in verse 2. Guard my life. Uh, likewise, down in verse 14, we'll see arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. David's life in some ways is in danger, so his prayer is pretty straightforward, actually. Hear me, God. Listen to me. Help me. Answer me. Save me. Now, the reason David is confident that God will intervene is because he is God's faithful servant. Verse 2. Save your servant who trusts in you. In fact, uh, later again in verse 16, David will say, save me because I serve you just as my mother did. The implication is that ever since birth, David has been raised to serve God. And so David expects that God will help him because masters look after their servants. Masters look after their servants. Uh, That's, of course, the benefit of being a servant. The difficulty for us is that when we hear this, we hear the word servant, and here's what we think. We think slave. And with that, all the unfortunate connotations of slavery, 
both currently and in recent times. But in the Bible, the word servant has a much more noble and much more honourable meaning. The image, when David says that he is like a servant, is of someone who is under protection. Now, perhaps a better image is if you think of feudal days, where there are barons and lords, they have those under their care in their fiefdom, you might say the peasants, who they serve their master, and the master takes care of all the big decisions of state. What crops do they plant? Do they go to war? What do they do if there's a famine? And the servant, in turn, they just serve their master, knowing that they will be cared for. So when David calls on his Lord like a servant, his assumption is that his master will intervene. Now, to be fair, the nature of that intervention is up to the master, of course. But the confidence that God will help him is based on God's character, on what God is like. And so we come to the middle part of the psalm, which is, in fact, its key, verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10, uh, point two, among the gods, there is none like you. Among the gods, there is none like you. Pick it up in verse 8 with me. David continues. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you've made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. Among the gods, there is none like you, says David. David knows that there are other gods. Uh, If you stop and reflect for a moment, at the time they were polytheistic, not atheistic. That is, they believed in many gods, not in no gods. They believed in many gods. But in saying, amongst the gods, there is none like you, Lord. In saying, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you. In insisting, you alone are God. David is declaring the unparalleled supremacy of the Lord. And that's, of course, the whole reason why he even bothers asking God for help in the first place. Uh, If I can put it this way, there's not much point asking for help from a semi-powerful deity. You might as well go to the one who is supreme. And the contrast, of course, here is with the pagan gods who generally only looked out for their own interests. That is, they used people as slaves and then discarded them when they are no longer of any benefit. The basis of David's request, his plea for God's help, is on what his master is like. And I wonder if you noticed in verses 8 through 10, that apart from two other verses in the whole of the psalm, this is the only time where, in a deeply personal prayer, David doesn't mention himself at all. Verses 8 through 10, not a single reference to I or me. It's all about God. It's as if, as he reflects on his desperate situation with arrogant foes attacking him, where he needs God's help, God's help at least in the very middle of the prayer, for a moment, his own circumstances have faded from view. They're secondary. All that matters is what God is like. 
And so in the last part of the psalm then, David returns to prayer, but it's a slightly different prayer. You see, whereas the first prayer was a call for God's help that God might deliver him, the way David concludes in verses 11 through 17 is by asking for God to work in him, not just for him. He asked God to work in him, not just for him. See if you can spot it as I read the last few verses. Verse 11. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I'll glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You've delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me. Have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The first part of the psalm was David's need for God's help. The second part was a declaration of God's supremacy. David's conclusion in the third part, God, work in me, not just for me. And you see that most clearly in verse 11. It's a prayer for David to rely on God's faithfulness, for David to fear God's name. Let me say a couple of things about verse 11 because it focuses us uh, on what the takeaway will be for us. Uh, In verse 11, when David says, uh, praise that, uh, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Uh, Sometimes we look at fear your name and wonder what it means to fear the name of the Lord. Uh, To be clear, I don't think fear God's name means make me terrified of you, God. Uh, Make me cower lest you smite me. I say that, of course, because clearly David has an intimate relationship with God. Uh, Verse 15, you are gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness. These are not the words you use of someone who you are terrified of. So instead, to fear God's name more likely means it's a prayer that God might help him have the right concerns, the right priorities. It's a prayer that he might live for God's honour and God's glory. Uh, To borrow from another prayer from the Bible, in fact, to fear God's name is a prayer that God's name might be hallowed, that his kingdom might come, that his will might be done here on earth as it already is in heaven. Uh, This is, of course, a much bigger prayer for David to pray, isn't it? He started by asking for God's intervention to save him from his enemies. But his prayer by the end is that God might not just merely improve his circumstances, which he'll still pray. His big prayer is that God might transform his character, change his heart, help him to long for what God desires. And that's why I think verse 11 is the key Because, verse 11, 
May I rely on your faithfulness. Relying on God's faithfulness is a prayer. Uh, it's a prayer that we might not be tempted to rely on anything else. Rely on ourselves. Rely on other sources of help. Other gods, perhaps. Why would you, of course, if the Lord is supreme? Uh, all of which raises a tricky question. Uh, why do we find ourselves tempted to look elsewhere? We know what God is like. We see what he has done. But still, at times, we find ourselves tempted to look elsewhere for help. Why? I suspect it's because we're impatient. We don't like the timing around God's answers. Or perhaps it's because we're a little bit arrogant. We think we know better than God what would be the right outcome in our circumstances. And if that's our risk, then of course verse 15 is a timely reminder of God's goodness. Verse 15, you Lord are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Here we're reminded of God's goodness, just as in verses 8 through 10 we were reminded of God's power. And when you marry those two things together, God's unparalleled supremacy, God's amazing devotion and compassion, they ought to be the things that are antidotes that prevent us from ever looking elsewhere. So it's right then that David prays, verse 11, give me an undivided heart. Give me an undivided heart. He wants to be single-minded, undistracted, not tempted to look elsewhere, to always trust in God's power and God's deliverance, uh, even when that intervention is not always forthcoming. Isn't that the time when you're most likely to turn away? to look elsewhere for help, to stop fearing God's name and to start calling him into question. Those times when he doesn't answer immediately or the way in which you really wish that he would. I think we see that most clearly when it comes uh, to evangelism, to that moment when we summon up courage to talk to our friends, our family, our workmates, our classmates, about what we believe, because we long for them to hear what we believe and to have it as well. And when we do so, it doesn't always turn out, turn out the way in which we wish it would. Perhaps next time, we'll be a little more nervous, a little more gun-shy. I've talked over the last few weeks about how I work with students, uh, many of whom are here in this room, and uh, you heard a few weeks ago about Jesus Week, one of those big weeks on campus where we try and give all of the 35,000 full-time undergraduates on North Terrace, a chance to hear about Jesus. And one of the starting points and what we encourage every student to do is to put on one of those bright red jumpers that you've seen, uh, which make it very clear that you are a Christian. You're part of something bigger, but you're a Christian. And, you know, the red colour is not, well, it's not subtle. Uh, it certainly draws attention this year. I talked to one student who said that he was pretty nervous about doing such a thing putting on a jumper, wearing it to class. Uh, but then he confessed that, well, he's from Victoria, so he supports Collingwood, and he's happy to wear a Collingwood jumper in South Australia. So really, what's the big deal? And there's a nervousness, I understand that. Sometimes opposition comes. 
Perhaps that's the moment in which we're tempted to be distracted, divided. Yet Psalm 86 reminds us that God's faithful servants live only for God's approval, for God's commendation. If that's the case, I think our biggest danger is not that God fails to answer our prayer the way we want him to. Surely our biggest risk is that we cease fearing his name and seeking his honour and glory. Well, there's a few comments about about what Psalm 86 says about God. Let me move more quickly then to how does Psalm 86 point us towards Jesus and then finally, what might it say to us today? Uh, We've seen different ways in which the Psalms anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, Today, I just want to point out that Jesus, of course, is David's descendant. Uh, David is Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. And so Jesus, like King David, is another king. One who trusts God completely. Who is committed to fearing his name, to doing his will, even to death. And that means that because of his faithfulness and obedience, Jesus is now entitled to eternal glorification. I think on the screen we have Philippians 2. Is that right? Philippians 2. This is a passage that we know well, uh, but we tend to finish about halfway through it. So I'm going to read the whole thing out and then point out the part that we often don't get to. Philippians 2 verse 5. uh, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing here about Jesus, who, verse 6, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Uh, Those verses are a wonderful reminder of what Jesus has done. Uh, We've remembered that this morning in the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. He has come to be one of us and to take our sins away by standing in our place through his death. There is the very heart of the gospel. The problem is for us often we stop there. We don't realize that, well, Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive. Because he is alive, he is therefore entitled to eternal glorification. So pick it up again in verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because of what Jesus has done, he is now supreme. Among the gods, there is none like him. He will be exalted forever. The proof of that is that he was dead and is now alive. Nothing can hinder hinder his eternal praise. And that conviction that Jesus will be worshipped and glorified forever... That conviction should shape our decisions and our priorities. That conviction ought to interpret our circumstances. This day, this week ahead. 
And so finally then, point three, what does Psalm 86 say to us today? What does Psalm 86 say about us today? Uh, Well, I have one last Bible verse for you on the screen. It's Matthew chapter 6. It's one that uh, you know well, particularly if you've been a Christian coming to church for a while. You've seen this many times. Matthew 6 verse 24. Uh, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Uh, You cannot serve both God and money. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to now talk about money and giving and offer trees and that kind of stuff. That's not where I want to go, and that's not the reason why I've included this verse. Uh, Although, having said that, um, I once heard it said that this is the most disbelieved verse in the Bible. This is the most disbelieved verse in the Bible. Um, Because every Christian knows, of course, that money can be distracting just for other people, uh, not for themselves. But the point of putting it there is because of what Jesus says so bluntly. You cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And I've included that because I think this is Jesus' reflection on Psalm 86 verse 11 about the danger of having a divided heart. Hence the prayer that your heart would be undivided. Because what Jesus is saying, I think, here is that your heart cannot love two things if both demand exclusivity. Let me say that again. Your heart cannot love two things if both demand exclusivity. How to make the point? Well, each week I've tried to give you an image. Here's the image that I printed there for you at the bottom of the page. It's a very disturbing image. It's a picture of a man who's stupid enough to think that he can marry two women. It's ludicrous, isn't it? To imagine that you can love both equally. We just don't have the capacity to do that. And here's why it's so important. It's because Jesus says that if you love something less when it deserves full devotion. Do you know what Jesus calls that? He doesn't call that 50% love or 25% love. Jesus calls that hatred. He calls it hatred. So when Psalm 86 encourages us to pray, Lord, give me an undivided heart. It's a prayer for complete devotion to the Lord and to nothing else. I think that gives rise to two practical prayers that you might pray in this week ahead. If you want to think about how this all hits the road, how it all comes home for us, two practical prayers. Here they are. Prayer one, God, this week, Help me love you more. Two, God, this week, help me love everything else a little bit less. Prayer one, God, help me love every, help me love you more. God, help me love everything less. Now, which of those two prayers do you think is harder to pray? That's not the first one, is it? We pray that all the time. 
the second prayer, that's the hard one to pray, particularly when our God fills our lives with so many good, lovable things. Still, for an undivided heart, I think it means praying, God, help me love the things of this world just a little bit less that I might be undistracted. How do you know if you have an undivided heart? Uh, well, you might ask the question slightly differently. Uh, what test could you run, could you order on your heart to see if it was undivided? Looking at the medical professionals here, you of course know that's a stupid question. Uh, you can't open up someone's body to look at their heart, see if it's divided or not. So how do you know if your heart is undivided? Well, I think the key actually comes in verse 12. Teach me your way, Lord, verse 11, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Verse 12, I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. I think the test of an undivided heart is one that's willing to praise God with all our heart. And that means praising God in every circumstance. Not just when it's easy. Not just when you feel like it. Even choosing to praise God when God doesn't answer your requests in the way in which you want, in the timing in which you'd like. I'm not saying that Christians ought to be a kind of happy-go-lucky, denying the reality of hardship and suffering. Clearly, that is part of our experience in this broken world. But Psalm 86 urges us to constantly praise God, to constantly praise God, if nothing else, because we're planning to glorify his name forever. So we might as well get started doing that which we will spend all eternity rejoicing in anyway. Now, a final thought then. Uh, I talked a little bit before about how it is that we might engage with our friends who aren't Christians. Uh, here's one thought, perhaps, that comes from Psalm 86. Uh, given the inevitability of suffering and hardship, I think that we have a better story to tell than our world around us does. You see, in the midst of a world that is broken and fallen... Our powerful God loves us and he is worthy of our praise. It seems to me that if others hear of our struggles, so we have to be real about them, of course, not paper over them. But if others hear of our struggles and at the same time of our certain hope and conviction about God, that he is good, that his love is unfailing, it seems to me then, just perhaps, they might want to meet this God as well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you acted and intervened so often, particularly to deliver people like David from their circumstances, but more importantly, we ask this day that you might give us an undivided heart. In this week ahead, we ask again that you might help us to love you a little more for what you have done and for the way in which you treat us and for what you are like. 
but equally, we ask that you might give us courage to love a little less the things of this world, that our hearts might be undivided and that we might fear your name alone. Amen.